Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. It is really, truly a joy to introduce our speaker tonight. Our speaker this evening obtained his doctorate in clinical psychology at Adler University in Chicago with internship and dissertation research at the Southern Illinois University School of Medicine, their Alzheimer's Center for Memory and Aging. Dr. Vost has taught psychology and gerontology at schools, including Aquinas College in Nashville, the University of Illinois in, at Springfield, and has served as a research review committee member for America Mensa. He is the author of 20 books, From Memorize the Faith to 12 Life Lessons from St. Thomas Aquinas. It really is a joy. Dr. Vost, thank you so much for being with us. The floor is all yours. All right. Well, thank you, Andy. I want to start by thanking you and the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'd like to thank all of you, some of uh, whom I can see here, for inviting me into your home today via your laptop or your desktop. I also need to say you're welcome. I did see a little comment flash on the screen thanking me for the handouts. So you're certainly welcome for those. Now, if you don't have that, it'll be up to you whether you use it or not. I'm not going to directly read from it or anything. So we'll get going. I do want to say, too, that I'm very excited about the opportunity uh, of doing this uh, webinar tonight in, in roughly two hours or so. I give this live talk many times on the Catholic Art of Memory to parish groups, um, group homeschool conferences like Legatus and other Catholic business groups. And I usually just have about 45 minutes to, to 50 minutes to do the talk and the live demonstrations. And sometimes I don't even get a Q&A, so we get the whole ball of wax here. So pretty excited about that to try to give you a fairly comprehensive look at this forgotten art. Hopefully, too, we'll have some chance for interaction to the point where I can see what's on your mind, how you think this might be helpful to you, particular applications you might have in mind. And when we do our Q&A, you know, maybe I can give you some insights or maybe you'll give me some insights when I find out uh, what you have in mind with these methods. So, so again, uh, thank you. Uh, even though I have a couple hours, I have a lot to say, so I better get hit the ground rolling. I'll start by saying I usually call this live talk the Catholic art of memory. And I usually start the talk by saying I'm going to go over that title word for word, but backwards. Okay, so I'm going to do that with this group tonight. So I'm going to start with the word uh, memory. And I'll start by asking how many of you have a very good memory? Now, I can't see uh, many hands here. I see a few people who I can't see going, eh, or yeah. When I do it, you know, for live audiences, I usually get very few hands up, maybe just a few. If there's children in the audience, sometimes they'll give me a, a hands up. But most people uh, you know, don't, won't say they have a good memory. But then I tell the audience, as I'm telling you, but it's really kind of, that was a kind of a trick question. Because one of the points I'll try to emphasize is memory is not just some fixed thing that we have or don't have in a certain measure. I'll try to show how moving back one word really is an art to some extent. We can really do a lot to transform our memory abilities. In fact, uh, the, the main memory technique I'll 
talk about tonight. We've known for over 2,000 years. In the oldest extant book we have on these techniques, he said they're specifically designed to make good memories better and bad memories not so bad after all. So that will be our goal. So hopefully there, there's uh, hope for us tonight regarding all of our own memories. I will say too, we often use that one word, memory, but it really covers a lot of ground. There are all kinds of different aspects and kinds of memory. You've all heard the difference between short-term memory, for example, and long-term memory. We can also talk about uh, verbal memory for things like words and language and visual memory, our ability to remember pictures and designs and images, things like that. We can talk about retrospective memory for things that happened in the past or prospective memory for things we want to try to remember to do in the future. And there are many, many more. And we'll touch on some of these as we go through this uh, lecture tonight. A key word here, though, is, again, art, calling this an art of memory. In art being short for artificial or man-made, implying there are specialized techniques that we can learn and practice that will help transform our memories. I think Andy mentioned, sometimes today there's the idea we don't really need to remember things so well because we have all this access to books, computers, uh, and so on. And sometimes memory is looked at as a very rote mechanical thing, just like uh, parroting something back. But these techniques are, are far more than that. They're actually allowing us to use our memories as we are made in God's image and likeness as rational animals, as beings with intellects and with wills. And we'll show how to actually use the higher powers of our intellect to transform the way we remember when we try to remember anything. So it's really a great uh, gift uh, from God that we can use to enhance our memories. In fact, St. Thomas Aquinas often talks about virtues as being perfections of various powers God gave us. And memory training can, in that sense, help us perfect these, these God-given powers of memory. Now, I also call it uh, the Catholic art of memory, and, and a forgotten art as well. And, and I have found over the years that not a whole lot of people realize there is a particular art of memory that has a very rich Catholic uh, background and tradition. Now, I know myself, before I discovered this history, if I would think of, of uh, memory in Christianity, my first thought might go to our Protestant brothers and sisters, some of whom are very good at citing the Bible uh, chapter and verse, giving particular texts. And this method can indeed be used for that purpose. But early on in the, in the discussion of this, these kinds of memory techniques, even the ancients distinguished between what they called memory for uh, words, which is actually the words uh, verbatim passages, you know, like reciting a scripture passage, word for word, and what they call memory for things. Memory for things would be key ideas, key concepts, maybe lists, maybe steps of a process that, that you could explain in your own words. So it might or might not involve a rote repetition uh, of a printed source. Uh, and that's the main use of this method. And I'll give you one of the early uh, recommendations for it way back in Catholic history. It goes back to St. Augustine. It said that he said, uh, you know, uh, and we'll talk about him later. He, he well, was well aware of these memory techniques. But he said, imagine you're sharing the faith with a person you come across, the Christian faith. He said, you're going to you know, try to draw them in. You're going to explain some of the, the fundamentals, some of the, the basic, beautiful facts of our faith that Christ died for us, that God is there as a trinity, that is love is there for us. And he said, you might, you know, cite some of the ideas behind a few 
uh, particular verses of scripture. But he said, but even if you had memorized the entire Bible, you're not going to stand there and start reciting that to them. You know, you're going to give them those key ideas. You're going to ask them to go to the Bible and read it and study it and maybe come back with you to study it further or to go to Mass and hear the, the Bible used in the Mass and explained in the Mass. So we'll keep that concept in mind as we go along. There is the capacity to do word-for-word -word memorization with this technique, but there are far other more readily usable and very important uh, uses of this in terms of memory for things or ideas or concepts, okay? So there's just a, a brief look at the idea of the Catholic art of memory. Now, the webinar, webinar itself, I gave a handout, but just to put it in brief, this first 50 minutes or so, uh, three mingles. One, I want to give you my own background in these techniques. You know, how did I come across them? What use were they to me? Why am I here talking about this topic with you tonight? Uh, I, I have background as a psychologist, so we'll also that will tie into these modern psychological research on the validity and power of these methods. The second part, I want to do a brief mini history of these techniques, going back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, and then showing multiple Catholic figures who play into the history of these techniques to perfect our memory. And then in the third part of the first half, I want to zoom in on one key figure, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, and give some detail on just how he wrote about this method and the way that we can use it. Then we'll have a little break. And then we come back, that second uh, 50 minutes or so will be devoted to demonstrating this, not just learning about this art memory, but doing it. We'll do at least one complete little exercise that we can all, you know, follow through and then see if it works for us. Uh, I will show how to remember any kind of list that you might want to remember. I will give you additional special techniques for locking in dates or historical timelines. And then finally, we can also look to see how you can apply this method to the scripture for memorizing verses word for word, or also for remembering the key themes of important verses, as well as where exactly they are in the Bible. So you could cite, you know, uh, the book, chapter, and verse, okay? So that's a general game plan, so I better get rolling. So my own history with these techniques. I usually start this by saying, it was the best quarter I ever spent. And believe me, it was. <laughs> I'm coming to you from Springfield, Illinois, the land of Lincoln, where uh, as an adult, this was Abraham Lincoln's hometown. And almost everything here, a uh, public building is named after him. So our main uh, library is the Lincoln Library. And every year they would have a big book sale for books that people would donate or books that uh, are on the shelves, but nobody reads them anymore. So you, you know, buy these books at a great discount. And one time in the late 70s, I picked up a book for a quarter called uh, Your Memory, Speedway to Success in Earning, Learning, and Living by O.W. Bill Hayes. It was written in 1958, but by 1978, nobody was reading it, so they were getting rid of it. <laughs> so I invested my quarter. And I read this little book. It's just purely a practical treatise. It gave some very important memory methods like what I'm going to show you, but it gave none of the historical background. You would have thought that this author maybe invented them uh, himself. Uh, but the techniques themselves I found so accessible and just they like amazed me how well they worked for me that I read many other books and learned more and more about uh, these methods, including the history of where they came from. So, yeah, my personal use, I discovered these in my late teens. So as I went through college, graduate school, anytime I had to memorize something as part of my class, it was really made a piece of cake. 
uh, with these methods. I used it all the way through my licensure in uh, getting my doctorate in clinical psychology then taking the, the national licensing exam. In fact, for that, for that exam, you know, a lot of professions have this, a very difficult exam. It was 200 items. Anything in the field of psychology could be on there. And quite an industry had developed to prepare people for it. You could go take these special seminars and buy these special books and all that. Well, I did not go to any of the seminars, but I bought the books and I applied these memory methods and, and traditional methods of study, you know. And it worked so well, I got the highest score in my state and set my school record. You know, So I knew through my own experiences, these were very, very useful. But even before my doctoral degree, when I was going for a master's degree in uh, psychology, it was general psychology as opposed to clinical. I wasn't as focused on mental disorder as I was on normal human development. And my special interest was development in childhood and adolescence in thinking and memory abilities. So I decided I wanted to see what the scientific research had to say on these memory techniques that worked so well for me. So I did a, a master's thesis called Memory Strategy Instruction in the Internalization of Higher Psychological Processes in Adolescence. That was from 1990. And I think the fact that I can remember that title shows these methods work. It's a rather long one, you know. But here, here's what I did. Uh, I examined the research that was out at the time in the psychology journals and in educational journals on applying this, these techniques with school children for academic subject matters. Things like vocabulary learning or foreign language vocabulary learning, learning geographical or historical or biological facts. And the bottom line in these studies that, that I uh, that reviewed was that they tended to be very, very effective when children were taught these methods and just over a course of a few hours or so for the basics. And some studies, uh, for example, one was on Spanish uh, vocabulary learning. They found that students trained in these techniques who were first or second graders outperformed fifth and sixth graders who did not have the training. Uh, in another study involving geographical uh, facts, a group of fifth and sixth graders who were taught the method outperformed high school juniors and seniors who weren't taught the method. Other studies, kids of the same age range often recalled uh, twice the information as those of the same age range who weren't taught the method. So, you know, so there's a lot of research out there showing this stuff could really be uh, effective for, for students, for all kinds of academic material. Now, after I got my master's, I, I was able to go back into a, a doctoral program in psychology where my focus was on neuropsychology or brain behavior relationships. And as Andy mentioned, I, I was able to do my dissertation research and my internship and, and one practicum before that at a medical school, the SIU School of Medicine, Southern Illinois University School of Medicine their Alzheimer's Center Memory and Aging Clinic. And we tested uh, folks early in the course of Alzheimer's disease. We tested people with various kinds of brain injuries. We also tested uh, normal elderly uh, control volunteers who helped us look at what happens to normal memory and thinking abilities as we get older. And I'll mention there in that research at our own clinic, we, we tested Franciscan sisters, Dominican sisters. I almost got to test my own fourth grade teacher uh, who had once given me a D in conduct, but, but she decided <laughs> she's going to have somebody else uh, test her. Uh, the Ursulines also. But anyway, there, there's one particular case study here, uh, you know, because most of my work was on testing people's memory. Uh, but this is one particularly interesting person that I worked with. And I only, not only did I test him, I trained him to some extent. And listen to this guy's story. 
I remember he was a former attorney, but he could no longer practice as an attorney. Actually, he was considered disabled by social security disability, which, which actually was my full-time job for 32 years, deciding that kind of disability. And they had determined he's really, unfortunately, unfit for any type of full-time work. He was age 45. I remember at the time thinking, boy, he's kind of getting up there, but 45 is well into my own rearview mirror right now. But he was also a very bright man. Even at that time, the time that I tested him, his IQ was 125, which is the top 5% of the, the nation. It was long considered kind of like the average for MDs and PhDs. You know, it's a very, it's a very high level of intelligence. And he still tested out that high, yet he couldn't work because of, of uh, cognitive thinking reasons. So, so why is that? Well, let me explain. When we would test people's memory, we gave a variety of tests. One of the simplest ones was just for a list of words. We had a 15-word list that we would give people. And I'd read them off one by one, kind of like this. Oh, I tell the person, I'm going to read you a list of words. When I'm finished, I want you to repeat back to me as many as you can. And I'd see if they're ready. Then I'd say, okay, here we go. Table. Dog. Book. You know, and so on. You know, th through our 15 words. Now, I guess I can't, I don't know if I can audibly hear you, but if you're familiar, the, the, the average person's short-term memory capacity, how many pieces of information a person could typically store at one time without losing track uh, is, is about seven, seven words or numbers, seven pieces of information. The psychologists often say seven plus or minus two is the, the magic number there because some people aren't quite as strong. They might just get five. Other people have better natural short-term memories. Maybe they can hold up to nine. But if you go between five and nine, that's where most people lie. And in fact, the reason, uh, the seven is part of the reason phone numbers are seven digits without the area code. It factored into determining that most people can, can hold that if they really try. Well, when I would do this test with normal volunteers, even some older ones, people would often get, you know, somewhere around seven words or so the first time. But we repeated this test eight times. And I gave them those words again, all eight times. And what would happen with a typical person who's not suffering from a dementia or brain damage is they start to build up. You know, the more you repeat the list, the more words they recall. So by the time we did eight trials, most people were up there, 12, 13, 14, many hit 15 words. I do remember the first person who ever on the eighth trial gave me all 15 words in their exact order was an 89-year-old retired Ursuline sister who used to be a teacher. So boy, she was still sharp. There is hope for us as we get older. If we use it or lose it, if we use our memories, they, they might stay very strong. But let me tell you about this man again, the, the former attorney. I give him these words. And the first time he gives me seven words back, which is, you know, average. His intelligence is above average, so a little bit weak, but, but that's what he accomplished, seven words. We repeat this again and again and again, eight times, and he can never get past nine words. So obviously his so-called learning curve is very flat. That information in his short-term memory is not getting into his long-term memory. But here's the most telling, the most telling test. After we would give people this, these, these words 15 times, we would do a variety of other tests. And then about a half an hour later, I'd say, hey, remember those 15 words that we did uh, a half an hour ago? Can you give me, give me back as many of those as you can? And this man, after a half an hour, oh, and most people, well, they might lose a word or two, but they're going to still give you the majority of those words after you've done them eight times. Uh, but this man, remember, he worked up to nine, 
After half an hour, he gave me zero. He could not repeat a single word, which was the second worst performance I ever saw. Now, how is that the second worst? He did remember that we did some kind of word test. I had another man who didn't even remember that we did the test. So unfortunately, he was just second place there. Uh, but here's, here's what was going on with this man. He had had an uncontrollable case of epilepsy or seizure disorder. So he'd had some tissue in a particular brain region, the left hemisphere of the brain and, and the temporal lobe by the temples, a structure called the hippocampus. He had to have that removed to keep him from having these surgery, uh, seizures. They were originating there. Now, for the majority of the population, even for most left-handers, which, which I am one, uh, our, our primary language abilities are in the left hemisphere of the brain. We tend to be dominant for language there and dominant for visual imagery in the right hemisphere. And interestingly, there's even a test you can perform on people to show that. There's a way that a psychologist and an anesthesiologist can work together. You can anesthetize one half of the brain at a time using a catheter that goes up through the carotids and test a person basically when their left or their right hemisphere is temporarily shut down. Amazing thing. But anyway, that explained this man's crash verbal memory. He'd had that tissue on the left taken out there. Uh, yet his right hemisphere was totally normal. And we also did extensive tests of visual memory. And his visual memory was normal. In fact, it was above normal. It was in keeping with his IQ. So my internship director knew of my uh, background in these memory training techniques. So he said, what would happen if we trained this man with these techniques? Could this help, help remedy uh, his problem? So we, we brought him in. I showed him the same kind of technique I'll demonstrate to us in the second hour. And the first trial, using these special techniques, he did nine words instead of seven. By his third trial, he was up to 11 words, which was more than the nine he got after eight trials the first time. But he got tired of the task and didn't want to do it anymore. So we only did three trials instead of eight like the last time. Now, a half an hour later, though, when I asked him to repeat those words to me, he didn't get a flat out zero. He remembered nine out of those 11 words. So it showed, you know, even with a man with this particular kind of condition, this technique worked because one thing it can do, it can trans transform verbal learning tasks into visual learning tasks. So we played to his strength and, and avoided his glaring weakness. So, so these techniques were really, really powerful. I, I kept working in the disability field after I got my doctorate. I did uh, college teaching for a lot of years. I taught mostly uh, developmental psychology courses. We did uh, lifespan development. They used to call a womb to tomb, you know, from, from birth until uh, old age and, and death and dying. I uh, did adolescence. Sometimes we would zoom in on the adolescent time period. I did psychology of aging for the end of the lifespan. And during all those courses, we did always have one section, one night where we focused on, on memory. So I really liked that. Uh, but as a college teacher, I use these memory methods in a few different ways. Number one, uh, first night of class, I would pay close attention to which student was which. Now, usually maybe 30 or 40 students. So by the second class, I would just sit up on my desk and call roll without a paper in front of me. Usually people are just kind of wondering what's going on here, you know. But I took the time to do that. And I thought it was helpful because students knew who I knew who they were. Or if I go out to a restaurant and one of them is my waiter or something, I could greet them by name. So it usually generated some, some, some goodwill. Another thing I did by the end of the term, uh, the last class uh, in that aging class would be a section on death and dying. And I would deliver that whole lecture without any notes. I just sit on the desk 
and start talking. I know early on, at least my students usually like that because they thought he's probably going to run out of things to say before long. But I think I disappointed him by giving him a pretty detailed lecture. But my favorite lecture, though, was when we talked about memory itself. That's when I could really describe and display and teach them how to use these methods. So the, the, the favorite demonstration that I had uh, crafted to use with my classes to show them just how powerful this technique was, uh, was to have the class generate a long random number. And remember, you know, short-term memory, usually about seven digits you can repeat back to a person. So I would tell the class, let's generate, take out a piece of paper, and let's generate a 50-digit number. So I'd say, you know, I ask people, raise your hand and call out a number, you know, so seven, four, eight, you know, uh, one, whatever. And we'd all write it down. I'd keep track. And then once we hit 50, I'd say, okay, we got our 50-digit number. Then I'd say, now let's take a couple minutes and memorize this. And there'd be moans and groans invariably. But what would we do that? I'd ask people to do that. Three or four minutes later, I'd say, okay, flip over your papers. And now let's see how we did. So I'd go up to the blackboard. You know, back in the days, we actually had blackboard and chalk and all that. I loved them. Uh, but I'd go up to that board and I'd ask the class to call out the, the digit string. And maybe if I had 30 or 40 people, they would get up maybe 11, you know, 12 digits or something. Then there'd be dead silence. At that point, I would finish the string on the board. Uh, then I would turn around and face them again and say, okay, flip your papers over. And then I'd say, now let's see how I did. And I'd start calling out numbers. I'd go, you know, three, seven, four, and they'd go, no, no, no. Somebody would, Dr. Vost, you're getting them all wrong. And I'd say, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you. I'm reading this digit string backwards now. I'm going from, you know, this side of the board back to the other side of the board. <laughs> and I described this to, to, to someone on a podcast a while ago. So gosh, they said, it's almost like a magic trick. Well, sort of, it was sort of like a magic trick, but I did one more trick up my sleeve after that. Uh, I'd say, pick out a number now, call out a number between one and 50. And someone would go 34, and I'd go, eight. Go, what do you mean? I'd say, well, the 34th digit in that string is an eight. We'd go up there and see, there it was. Now, was that a magic trick? You know, no, not at all. Uh, I was showing how, by using our reasoning abilities, by treating memory as an art, we can totally transform the memory task. So my students were memorizing a 50-digit string of random numbers. I mean, that, that's not easy, right? Uh, I was using two methods. I was using a method of locations that I will really go into in depth. We'll do a complete demo in a little while. So when I remember memorized uh, those uh, 50 digits, I was actually transfer transforming them into uh, groups of two. And I memorized 25 things in their exact order. In this ordering system, I already knew in my head better than the back of my hand. So that was nothing. Uh, so this method of locations helped me. The second method was, there is a memory system that allows you to convert digits or numbers into consonant sounds. So when they called out these numbers, I was immediately transforming them into words. And in those words, I just did two digits at a time. I placed them in these places. So let me know when I went back and looked at my images, I would read back the numbers. I also knew from the places exactly where every one of them were. So, you know, I, I would do that trick. Sometimes uh, I do two different classes, two nights in a row, we'd have two different numbers. And I got, as I was getting older, I thought, I'm going to mess this up sometime. So I want to think of a technique my students can do. So, so I settled on something where I taught them how to memorize 
uh, 20 words that ended up being vocabulary words that would be on their next test from our, our course in psychology. And when I did that, when I did this demo with my students, almost invariably, more than half of the students were able to memorize all 20 words with this one demonstration. So again, they were very uh, effective. 2004 was the, the last time I, I did uh, college teaching for a state university. I kind of retired at that point, though the Dominican sisters down in Nashville, Illinois, were able to talk me out of retirement. About eight years later, I did do a course for them. How could you say no to the sisters of St. Cecilia down there? But anyway, uh, it was during that year, uh, year 2004, that I realized I was kind of was working too hard. I, I'd gone through doctoral school while working full time, you know, having a very young family. Our youngest son was born two months into my training. I decided I was going to take some time off, do, do some reading, have more leisure. And a series of events led me to read St. Thomas Aquinas for the first time. Now, some backdrop here is I was raised Catholic. My late teens, I read some bad philosophy and considered myself an atheist for the next 25 years. Now, 25 years later, at the age of 43, it was the stirring of the Holy Spirit and the writings of St. Thomas that brought me back to the faith. Not long after that, I, I remembered when I was studying these ancient memory techniques, St. Thomas Aquinas was very often mentioned as a very, very prominent figure. So I was aware of that. He had a key role in this art of memory. And when I came back to Christ in the church, I realized too, and I started reading book after book on St. Thomas, that he was almost never mentioned in any Catholic source I read for his role in the history of memory development. There were historians, secular historians, English professors who wrote about him, but I had not seen it in Thomas' texts. And one of these uh, historians of the art of memory, she wrote that herself. She hadn't seen it there. So that's why it's kind of a forgotten Catholic art. It's never really been uh, emphasized. Now, there's a reason, many reasons for that. One of them is, maybe some of you have, have read or, or at least seen parts of the, the Summa Theologica, his greatest masterwork of over a million and a half words. There's a hardcover version that has the Latin, uh, the original Latin and an English translation. It's eight big volumes and its shipping weight is uh, 32 pounds. So it's quite a book. And it's really just almost smack dab in the middle of that book in about one page worth of dialogue that he explicitly talks about this memory method. And if you didn't have a background in this memory method, you might not even realize exactly what he was talking about. So anyway, soon after I came back to the church, I thought, wow, I would like to grow in my own faith, help other people grow in their faith by presenting this method that comes from St. Thomas Aquinas to a Catholic audience, okay? So that's where my book, the first memory book, Memorize the Faith, uh, came from. But now, that, that's enough for my background. Uh, the remainder of this uh, first section, I want to give you a whirlwind course of the history of this technique, emphasizing in particular some of the Catholic, uh, strong Catholic influence here. All right, let's go back to the original story of the invention of this ancient art of memory. It goes back to the uh, ancient Greek poet Simonides, from the sixth century BC. He was such a great orator, orator one of his nicknames was uh, the honey-tongued. You know, we have one of our church fathers, St. John uh, Chrysostom, who is called the honey-mouth. Well, Simonides, the honey-tongued, this great Greek uh, poet and orator. And he was invited, as the story goes, to uh, give a talk at this banquet by this wealthy man named Scopus of Thessaly. 
So Simonides goes there to give one of his orations. And as he's getting going in the oration, he says he wants to dedicate this oration to Scopus and also to the twin Greek gods Castor and Pollux. Now, that was not unusual at that time for the ancient Greeks. You know, it was part of their polytheistic system. Some sources also say Simonides was giving an oration on an Olympic boxer, and they somehow had some kind of special connection uh, to boxers. So anyway, Simonides does this. And the story is that early on in the evening, Scopus, his host, pulls him over and says, Simonides, since you were so gracious as to dedicate your talk to me and to Castor and Pollux, I'm going to pay you half of your fee, and you can get the other half from Castor and Pollux. So he's a very vain man, right? He wanted all the credit. So now, as this legend goes, at some point during his oration, two young men come to the door and say Simonides is needed for this emergency. So Simonides leaves the hall, tries to find these men. He sees them running down the street. He follows them to kind of lead them on a wild goose chase. He never does catch up with them. By the time Simonides comes back, the town had suffered an earthquake, and the roof of the hall fell in and crushed all the guests so badly that the authorities and their, even their own families couldn't identify them. But Simonides realized that from his position as a speaker, he could. He saw where they were sitting or reclining. So he could say, oh, yeah, and Potocles Smith, he was sitting right there. Socrates Jones was right next to him, you know, and so forth throughout. So as this story goes, who were those two men that called him out on the emergency, you know, according to the legend? According to the legend, that was Castor and Pollux. And what was their gift to him? How did they pay him? Well, in two ways. One, they saved his life. He was called away and wasn't crushed. And the second, because of this incident, he happened to discover this ancient art of memory based on two main components. One is the power of locations, an organized system of location, like the way they were sitting. Also, a second was the power of visual images, because he saw this, he saw them with his eyes. Now, from that time on, they talked about distinguishing between a natural memory and an artificial or an art of memory. Like through our natural memory capacities, we memorize, we tend to memorize things very well that we have seen, especially if they're arranged in a certain order. But through artificial memory, we don't even have to actually see things arranged in order with our eyes. We can just imagine that order. We can create this system of order through the own power of imagination that, we're, that we've all been blessed with. So there's the origin of this story. Now, Simonides was a Greek, and, and their word for places was topoi. Uh, but the story comes down to us in the oldest texts that were Latin. In the Latin word for a place is a locus or plural, a loci or loci, locations. So it's most widely known as the method of, I usually kind of anglicize it, Americanize it, loci or loci, I think, in the ancient Greek, the method of locations. Though some say that we still have this idea present in the Greek topoi because the art was first used for public speakers. And, and what are the different parts of a talk often called? They're called the topics, like from the topoi. Or we might say, well, in the first place, so there's this, this kind of a link back to this locational system, even in our, our current English language when we talk about giving talks. So second key figure is Cicero, someone that I heard from any city you've already had a, a talk on. Yeah, Cicero was a, a marvelous figure, influential in many ways. And he is a key figure in this art 
because in one of his, his books on the orator, De Orator, uh, he talked about and endorsed this art of memory based on locations and images. And Cicero was a first century uh, BC. Now, there was another book uh, written in some 80s BC called the Ad Herenium, which would just mean for Herenius. And we don't even know who Herenius is. And it's all about the ancient art of rhetoric or public speaking. And they break it into five different practices or principles. And one of them, the fourth, is memory. And here is our greatest detailed ancient source telling us how this place and system, place and location system works. And for many centuries, it was thought that Cicero himself wrote that book. In fact, now if you go to the Loeb Classical Library and look for the ad, you're going to see Cicero listed as the author, though most people today, most scholars don't think he actually wrote it. But it's very consistent with everything that he wrote. So Cicero is a very major figure in this ancient art of memory, passing it on uh, to later thinkers, especially our great Catholic thinkers, as we'll see uh, in just a few minutes. Now, how about Catholic history as we move into the centuries A.D.? Well, a couple of the, of the uh, earliest, most profound church fathers were well-versed in this system. Uh, one that I included in the handout is St. Jerome, you know, our great biblical doctor who gave us the Latin Vulgate Bible. And he was very classically trained. He was so fond of Cicero. Some of you may have heard this story. In one of his letters, he talks about a dream that he had where he was uh, confronted and said, you know, that, uh, accused of being more of a follower of Cicero than he was of Christ because of all of his academic training. He said that sometimes he would fast and do ascetical uh, practices and penance to make up for how much that he read Cicero. And I put in the handout that it appears he was aware of this ad herenium, but as I was doing some further reading and brushing up again, I realized he actually did cite it twice in two of his writings. So St. Jerome was definitely aware of this, this ancient uh, book on the memory techniques. Also, he has some really eloquent writing in some of his other uh, writings. He's talking about the book of Ezekiel, where it talks about uh, him eating a book. He says how eating a book, how that compares to what we do when we memorize things, we, we digest it. Uh, some very eloquent stuff there. He also says at one point, you know, nothing that you've learned is useful unless you store it in the treasure house of your memory. So St. Jerome tells us if we take the time to, to learn our faith, to understand it, to think about it deeply, it, it pays to remember that, to hold on to those lessons so we can apply them. Now, St. Augustine, of course, St. Jerome's great contemporary, was another person who was classically trained and taught, you know, rhetoric, you know, rhetoric, public speaking. So he was well-versed in Cicero. Some scholars think he was actually uh, involved to some extent in the revival of this ad herenium in these methods, though he does not apparently explicitly cite it. Now, in his confessions, you know, Augustine, of course, was a master, uh, master of prose, and he has some very eloquent passages about his own memory and how it works. Like he talks about the, the spacious fields and palaces of his memory. Sometimes people today will talk about this location system as building a memory palace, you know. So we see these allusions there in St. Augustine. He also talked about memory as being the, uh, the, the stomach of the soul. It's where we hold things and di digest them. So Augustine was a key figure. They were both uh, third, early, fourth, early, fifth century, Jerome and, and Augustine. Now, we move along the centuries a little bit, and we kind of, to lose some extent, there aren't key figures employing this particular memory art. Now, during the you know, early you know, dark ages, as some call them, after the fall of Rome, 
for one thing, there wasn't the, quite the call for public speaking as there used to be when we didn't have this Republican form of government. We had, you know, the various uh, kingdoms and, and autocratic rulers set up. Uh, but of course, the Catholic monastic tradition was building at this time. And some of uh, the monks were known to have tremendous powers of memorization. There's this ancient rule, uh, for example, of St. Uh, Ferolius, and it says in there that any man worthy of the name monk will memorize the 150 psalms in their entirety if he's going to consider himself worthy of the name monk. Uh, and in a modern book uh, talking about this rule, it said it would take the average monk about two to three years to do that, though, though some really quick studies could do it in as few as six months, but with, of course, a lot of diligent effort. But at this time period, the, the centuries immediately after Augustine and Jerome, we don't see a lot in Catholic history or, or any history about these ancient memory methods. Now, in fact, if we, if we move up to the, around the year 800, Blessed Alcuin, this great learned man put into service by uh, Charles the Great, uh, Charlemagne, to help you know, educate Christian Europe, unify it and educate it. Uh, in one of Alcuin's dialogues, he's, he's cast this as a dialogue with Charlemagne. And Charlemagne asked him to, to teach him about rhetoric, this art of public speaking and persuasion. And at a certain point, he says, now tell me, you know, Alcuin, about memory. What do we know about memory? And Alcuin says that Cicero called it you know, like the, the treasure store, you know, of things worth learning, things like that. So he knew at least Cicero's first book, De Orator, talking about the value of these techniques. But then Charlemagne said, but, but how do we perfect it? How do we improve our memories? You know, to paraphrase. And Alcuin says, you know, you need to, to, to read a lot, study a lot, practice memorization, and most of all, to avoid uh, drunkenness, which I think is actually very good uh, advice. At times, I've done talks at, at things like Theologies on Tap, and I found it's much better to do my drinking after my speaking, you know, but I'm just kidding there. But of course, that idea that avoiding drunkenness it is good common sense. All of what he said is but it appears that Alcuin did not know about this specific art using the locations and the places. Now, there, there's other figures, I won't go into it here, we'll run out of time. Other figures in the outline, uh, but the key figures that I wanna emphasize, we jump up to the 13th century, St. Albert the Great. Okay, he's St. Thomas Aquinas' teacher. He lives approximately from 1200 to 1280. And he was really monumental in what he did with this ancient art of memory. For one thing, he did have access to that Ad Herenium, that old memory book. And he did a commentary on that book line by line. He extensively addressed this. If some of you might be familiar, maybe with the way Thomas Aquinas or other scholastic theologians lay out their great books with these various objections, which they list one by one and then answer, in this book on memory, Albert gives a full 26 objections why people think this memory stuff would be not appropriate to consider it a part of a virtue or, or not really effective or useful. He answers a full 26 objections there in great uh, detail. So, so Albert endorses this. What else he does? Albert combs the ancient Greek and Roman literature on the nature of memory. How is it that we remember things in general. How does natural memory work? How does sense information move into our senses and get stored in our minds so we can recall it later? The key figure there was Aristotle. And Albert synthesized those two bodies of literature. He synthesized the body of literature from Aristotle on how memory works, 
with the literature going back to Cicero on how to perfect it, showing how they, they meshed together so it was a great achievement. Uh, he did something else. He, uh, Aristotle himself talked about the difference between memory and reminiscence or recollection. Memory referring more to the straightforward natural capacity to store information and recollection referring to our capacity to, to look back at our own memories and try to recall things that we've learned and forgotten. So he talks about both of those. Another important difference, these the memory techniques came down through that art of uh, rhetoric or public speaking, right? Because public speakers would often use these techniques to memorize the key points of their talks so they could give their talks without any notes. They wouldn't memorize them word for word because you might trip up. They memorized the key ideas so it would leave them free to speak uh, and elaborate. But anyway, Albert moves this method from the field of public speaking, but also into the field of ethics or how we guide uh, and live holy lives. Because he emphasized the point that Cicero himself had made in describing the virtue of prudence or practical wisdom. Cicero and St. Albert agreed that so there are three main, main parts, things we have to have to exercise prudence. Memory, intelligence, and foresight. Because to achieve virtuous goals in the future, and foresight, of course, is future-oriented, we must act in the present, you know, which implies using our intelligence and understanding, guided by the lessons we have learned in the past. Those lessons that we learn in the past are what's stored in our memory. Albert also said, because we live our lives, you know, from, from now into the future, in a sense, a trained memory is the most important part of the virtue of prudence, because it guides our decisions now that, that impact, you know, how we act in the future. So, so Albert said memory is, in a sense, the most important part of the virtue of prudence. And he said not only memory, but a trained memory. So he said it was a very useful ethical thing to train our memories to try to improve them to hold in our memories things like the fundamental elements of our own faith, the kind of things that we'll focus on as we move into our demo in just a few minutes. Now, I'm showing I should probably be ready to, to go for a break in just a few minutes, but there's one thing I want to cover uh, before that. And for that, I want to call in our special guest, St. Thomas Aquinas himself, okay? So here he is, you know, he has his great book, like the Summa Theologia, which holds up the church because he's the common doctor, the doctor, the teacher common to the whole church. He has the emblem of the sun on his chest there because he illuminates us with his wisdom uh, as the sun illuminates, you know, uh, the earth there. But Thomas was a very key figure uh, in the art of memory. In fact, a secular historian called him the patron saint of these memory techniques. I like to think of St. Albert's intellect like a great searchlight. It covers everything. Albert was looking at everything. He's called the universal doctor. He was a scientist. I like to think of St. Thomas's intellect as a laser beam. He also is interested in a lot of things, but whatever he looks at, he penetrates in amazing depth. And Thomas addressed this art of memory within his Summa Theologica, like St. Albert when talking about prudence, except Thomas really pairs it down. He doesn't give us 26 objections and answers. He zooms in on only, only three. And he really elaborates most fully on just one of those objections. Now, you'll find this in the Summa Theologica. It's in the handout. Uh, the second part of the second part, the 49th question, the first article called Whether Memory is a Part of Prudence. And it is pretty close to smack dab in the middle of those 3,000 plus uh, 
pages. In one of the handouts, I kind of summarize his points there. The point I fleshed out regards the second objection, which basically said, uh, now memory is not really a part of prudence because memory is just a natural ability and prudence is a virtue that we build through practice. And Thomas begins by saying, well, you know, uh, as prudence, the ability to, to be prudent is built up through our practice and habitual actions. So too, memory is based in nature. He said, but memory is perfected by art and diligence, perfected by particular methods and diligent practice. Then he goes on to say, to narrow this down to four things, sums it up really well. He says, there are four things by which a person, person perfects uh, their memory. Number one, anything you want to remember, you should take some, he calls this unwanted or, or marvelous or unusual image of it. You should form an image of whatever it is you're trying to remember. Even if it's an abstract or spiritual concept, you try to form a corporeal image, an image that you could see in your mind's eye, a concrete image. And he said, part of the reason for this is this is the way our intellect and memory works. Any information we receive comes to us through our senses. And we have a especially powerful grasp on things that come through senses, especially the sense of vision, the primary sense used for these techniques, though hearing and language also play a role. So number one, form images of things, unusual images. Number two, he says we should uh, arrange whatever it is we want to remember in a particular order, okay? There was an earlier figure in the, the history of the art of memory, Hugh of, of uh, St. Victor, who said that uh, confusion is the mother of forgetfulness. Confusion is the mother of, for, of forgetfulness, right? So, so order helps us remember having an organized memory. And that's one of the things these places I'm going to demonstrate do because we, we learn these places in an exact numbered order. And once we learn them, they stay in that order all time and forever and can always give us an exact arrangement. Okay, so number one was uh, forming images. Number two was an orderly arrangement. Number three and four, you already know this. If you want to perfect your memory, Thomas says, you have to be anxious and earnest about it. In other words, you have to focus, you have to concentrate. And number four, if you want to remember something, you all know this too. Every time you've taken an exam at school, you have to repeat or rehearse it, right? Repetition is the mother of memory. Repetitio est mater in memoriae. Repetition is the mother of memory. So even with these specialized techniques, we lock them in by practice. So if things are timed fairly well, I think we're 50 minutes or so in, I'll break at this point. I'll let Andy take over, but I will say too, uh, when we come back for our demos, I will also be open to any questions. If anything I've said so far has been unclear or confuses you or intrigues you, if it's okay with Andy, it's okay with me to, to ask away. So thanks so much for your attention for our first half. Thank you so much, Dr. Bose. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Another distinction between uh, different kinds of memory is uh, what the sentence called semantic memory or kind of book learning memory, information that we acquire by reading something, trying to memorize some list or something, contrasted with experiential memory. Memories of an experience we actually live through. It is so usually much easier to remember things that we've actually experienced. So that's one of these things these memory techniques do. They kind of transform something that you might just read on a page to, in a sense, an experience that you've lived through, or at least you've imagined living through this. It's hopefully we'll get some feel for this as we do our first memory exercise. So let's just uh, jump right in then. And uh, 
let's see. It's not really necessary. When I do live talks, I don't do it. But if it could be, if that little graphic could be put up on the screen. All right. For this first exercise, I ask you to uh, turn your imaginations, uh, your imagination and your powers of concentration on high. Because remember, Thomas said it's two things that we need. We're going to use images and we need to concentrate. So please turn those on high. And I'm going to ask you to come join me at my home here in Springfield, Illinois. And I want you to imagine that as you approach my front door, it's kind of a sprawling ranch house surrounded by some mature maples and oaks. But you see my front door there, that foyer? This was actually, when I first Curry came up with this, it was kind of patterned after the way that my wife uh, arranged the foyer, except for a couple one is one real big difference we'll explain later. But my wife likes to rearrange things. So the four doesn't look like that anymore. But thanks to this image, I'll never forget what it used to look like back in 2004. But for our memory exercise, all right. Imagine you come to my front door. See that location number one? That's location number one. Imagine the door opens and you are blinded by a great light and you hear a resounding crash, blinding light. You hear a crash, you're thinking, what kind of house does he have? Okay, do we all have that image for number one at the front door? Number two, you see there's a doormat there, which is not so unusual. Except you're gonna imagine that doormat, you hear it talking, and not only is it talking, it's cussing, it's cursing. You don't like that kind of language, so you actually try to step on its lips to muffle it. So do you have that bizarre image there at number two? the cursing doormat. Number three, there's a glass panel next to the front door. And let's imagine you look back out that panel and you realize, wow, what a beautiful day that is out there. That's about maybe the most glorious day I've ever seen. So can you picture that? Can you imagine that? Looking out my glass panel, seeing this beautiful day out in the front. All right, number four. We're back in the foyer and you can see that portrait right there next to the door. And this one really shocks you because that is a portrait of your parents. Thinking, what's Dr. Vos doing with my parents hanging up in his foyer, but there they are. Can you imagine that? All right, that's the fourth image. Number five, we're gonna go over to the wall there and you're gonna see a gun rack. But I want you to imagine that gun rack also has a large padlock on it. We all have that, the padlocked gun rack there at five. Number six is the center of the foyer. This is kind of a difficult one, so really pay attention if you would. We're going to imagine that we see this unfamiliar adult standing there. And he's acting kind of strange. He's kind of trying to like hide his face with, the, with his coat. So this adult who's acting very secretive is standing in the center there of the foyer at number six. Number seven, there you see the chandelier. What's odd about this chandelier, we're going to imagine that it's made out of solid steel. There's not a bit of glass, which is pure steel. So we have that, the steel chandelier at number seven. There's three more to go. Number eight is a mirror on that other wall of the foyer. And when you look into that mirror, it's not so unusual. You see your, your image, but you know this house is a little bit odd. That image is distorted. It's a false image. In fact, it's like one of those uh, carnival mirrors. You ever seen those that makes you look very huge or very thin? It distorts your image. So in the mirror, you see a false image. Number nine, sitting on that little cushioned bench, who should be there but your next door neighbor's wife? Can you picture her? Oh, your next door neighbor doesn't have a wife or you don't have an extra neighbor. That's no problem. You just imagine, just pretend you do. Number nine, there's your next door neighbor's wife. 
Number 10, you might see there's some small drawers there under that cushion bench. And what do you find when you pop open one of those drawers? And I know I gave this at a live talk one time and a lady blurted out, there's your next door neighbor's husband. Well, not necessarily, unless he's inside a gift wrap package, because that's what you see when you open up number 10, these gift wrap packages. Now, there's a brief tour, but remember, Thomas told us that repetition is the mother of memory. And I also claim that these techniques will allow us to memorize things in their correct order, both forwards and backwards. So let's practice this, rehearse this one more time, but let's do it backwards. Let's start with 10. We open up that drawer and the bench, and what do we see in there? What pops out? The gift wrap presents, right? Who's sitting there at number nine on the cushion bench? Our next door neighbor's wife. What did we see in that mirror? A false distorted image. Up in the chandelier at number seven, well, the chandelier was made out of solid steel, right? Number six, there we saw that secretive adult. Number five, we know that gun wreck had a big padlock on it. Number four, who's going to forget? Those are your own parents there. Number three, of course, we saw that glorious day out in front. Number two, that Henri doormat was uh, cursing. And number one, we opened the door and what? We saw that bright light. We heard that resounding crash. Now, true story, when I was little, if I said something that didn't seem to make a lot of sense, my mom would sometimes say to me, now, what does that have to do with the price of beans? Okay. She came from a family of farmers. We're surrounded by soybeans and corns here where I live. And uh, this is a fair enough question. What did that have to do with anything, with learning anything about the faith? Now, I imagine maybe some of you have read Memorize the Faith. If you have, uh, Andy, that's cheating. You, you knew it, if, <laughs> but no, you knew in advance what it was. That's the first example I give in Memorize the Faith. But let's see what it is, if you don't know. All right. Number one, at that front door, we saw that great light. We heard the crash. That light is there as a reminder of he who said, fiat lux, let there be light. That's our symbol for God. That crash symbolizes the, the crash of false idols. This is our reminder for the first commandment, to love and honor God alone and not false idols. So just a simple reminder of the first commandment. Number two, we had that doormat that was cursing at us, right? Well, what's the second commandment? Not to use the Lord's name in vain. So hopefully a pretty clear-cut reminder. Number three, the glorious day outside should remind us of keeping holy the Sabbath day, the Lord's day. Number four, the fourth commandment. You couldn't get much straightforward than that one, could you, to honor your parents? Number five, the uh, gun rack with the padlock is, of course, the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill. And I like to tell this story. That is one feature of that foyer that was never a real part of the foyer. Uh, of course, the reason I put that gun rack there was I knew I was going to use it for that fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill, right? And when I would do radio programs on this, when the book came out, I always say, there is actually, though, no gun rack in my foyer. I guarantee you that. But one time I did that with a guy from the Baton Rouge uh, Catholic Radio. And he said, oh, no, there's nothing unusual about having a gun rack in your foyer. Later, I told that story to a group in Texas. Uh, and they laughed. And they said what was unusual was the padlock. <laughs> Another time, I told that story to a live audience in Michigan. And some people just started snickering and pointing above my head because I was speaking in a lodge and there were actually rifles above the fireplace behind my own head and I hadn't noticed it, okay? So not that I'm a gun person, but I just, I couldn't help those little incidents happened over time. 
But if you remember that image and where it is, you'll never forget that that's the fifth commandment. Sixth commandment, maybe a little bit tougher. We had this secretive adult, right? So that's the commandment not to commit adultery. Seven should be very, very easy. Thou shalt not steal. It was solid steal, right? So it's something else about these memory techniques. The reminder itself can be something as simple as a, as a homonym or as a pun. The, the key thing is that they remind us of what it is we're truly trying to remember. Number eight, another perhaps a hard one, that false image in the mirror reminds us not to bear false witness. Number nine could hardly be easier. We're not to covet our, na- our neighbor's wife, because there she was, our neighbor's wife. And number 10, we're not to covet our neighbor's goods, because there we saw those presents and those packages, those material things. So that is just one simple demonstration of how this method can be applied to, to matters of the faith. In effect, because of that Ten Commandments, and I remember once I was even invited out to do a parish mission in, in Farmington, New Mexico, and one of the goals there was that all the grade school kids and all the kids taking the at public schools taking religion classes, that by the time I left, they would all know the Ten Commandments. It was one of our big themes. We went through that little demo. But... That is, is just the beginning, just a bare introduction to what this technique can do. A, a location system like the 10 spots in that foyer become like a notepad. The ancient sources said the locations uh, are like paper. The images that we put on there are like ink or they're like words or they're like drawings. But once you learn a system of locations like that foyer, you can use it again and again and again for the rest of your life for all kinds of different information. You could even use it for something as mundane as your grocery list. Okay, you open your front door today and a giant banana socks you in the nose. You step inside on your doormat and you trip over a big sack of potatoes. You know, whatever it is that you need, you know, if you really wanted to, and I have times I've actually done this for practice. Kathy sends me out to the store. Don't give me a list. I'm going to practice. And it always works out well. In fact, if I know the grocery store well, I lay out the items as I go through the store. So I just pluck them as I, as I go along. Uh, but wouldn't this kind of clog up your memory? Well, remember, repetition's the mother of memory, right? The things that you don't repeat, you're going to forget. So you can use a different memory uh, grocery list next week because you, you've forgotten about that one. It's, it's not been important. The things that are worth remembering, well, like the Ten Commandments, if you review them once in a while, they can stay with you uh, forever. So the basic technique in Memorize of Faith, we, we use this location method using rooms of a house. That illustration what was the first room, the, the foyer. We then move into a living room where the first thing I illustrate there is uh, seven virtues. We move into a dining room. Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry, the uh, seven deadlier capital sins. We move into a dining room that houses seven virtues. We move into a family room that holds the Beatitudes. We actually move into a little cathedral we imagine is attached to the house for the sacraments. And then we go to my study where we have locations to lock in all 20 rosary mysteries. So this gives us a full 60-item system of locations. Later through the book, then, we move through these rooms with additional subject, new subject matter. Uh, one, one of my favorites is when we use the rooms for all of the books of the Bible. We go through and reuse them for the 46 books of the Old Testament. And let me give you a brief example of how. You remember that, uh, that memory foyer, that front door. Now we say 
You imagine the door opens and you're greeted by your friend Jennifer and her sister. So what? there's Jen and Sis, right? You probably don't need that for Genesis, but, but there we are, Jen and Sis, Genesis. Number two, we imagine that that doormat has the big word exit printed on it. Exit reminding us of Exodus, right? Number three, you look at that uh, glass panel. I see a picture of this giant pair of Levi jeans covering the front yard. Levi for Leviticus, you know. Then we can work our way around going through that memory foyer for the first 10 books of the Bible. Then we move into the living room, the dining room, the family room. By the time we're to the sixth location in the, the study, we reach this chair where we see this uh, kid's kite that's been left there. It's covered with sticky marshmallow because this uh, mallow kite will remember us or remind us of the book Malachi, you know, the last book of the Bible. So we do this with all of these using this location system. And to give you one more example, when Memorize the Faith was produced, we illustrated it, not only with those rooms, but with some of the images, what we put up there. And let's see if this comes across well enough for, for you to see, because I didn't prepare a formal handout or anything. But if you can see this, you see those billiard balls, and you see what's sitting on it, sitting there? The 30th location in the memory house houses the 30th book in the Old Testament as is listed in the catechism. It's one of the prophets. Anyone guess who that is? With that bullfrog there? Well, who is, I see some, I see Kristen, I think, saying Jeremiah, because Jeremiah was a bullfrog, right? According to that, that famous song from Hoyt Axton and who was it? Three Dog Night, you know. But, but for, for all these, you can use these little images. And I guarantee you, once you remember where that bullfrog is, you're not going to forget that it's Jeremiah. But through doing this, you know, we can kind of have fun. We can set up these images to remind us of any, you know, knowing all the books of the Bible in their exact order. And one of the ways that I find that to be helpful is whenever I'm looking something up in the Bible, you know, I don't have to flip back to the table of contents. I have this mental picture of exactly where every book is uh, in relation to, to uh, every other. So it helps there. It can also form the basis uh, of further uh, memorization involving the Bible. Like if you want to know where something is in the Bible, where a certain theme is, where a topic is discussed, which book of the Bible. Once you know these images to remember the order, you also have the image to help you lock in details where these things are found. So that's very useful. Again, these lists, you know, you can use this basic location technique to memorize virtually any kind of list that might be of interest to you. Uh, you know, things associated with the faith. Uh, if you're a student, any academic subject matter uh, can be there. Geographical facts work very well. There are other special memory methods that are used for uh, foreign language vocabulary or unfamiliar, even, even unfamiliar English vocabulary that, that use these kind of images. And I'll give you an, an example because some of the techniques that I studied that are used with the children use this kind of technique. It's called the keyword method. Let me give you a couple examples just for uh, uh, foreign language learning using these kind of images. I assume we probably have some folks there who, who are French speakers. I have a son who <clears throat> studied French all through uh, high school and college and got to study for a time in Poitiers, so he's fluent. I only had two years of high school French, so I can remember only on peu, <laughs> just, a, just a little bit. Uh, but an example of how this works, let's say you're trying to remember that the, the French word for book, which if I recall correctly is spelled L-I-V-R-E, 
It is pronounced something like livra. So an image you could use, imagine a tree and instead of leaves, it has books. So it has books instead of leaves on this tree. How unusual, right? But if you have that image, when you see uh, the leaves will remind you of the sound of the French word. So when you hear the word leave, you're gonna, uh, it's gonna, you're gonna have this association of books. Well, book is what it means. So the, the image for the leave locks in the sound and the image of the book locks in the meaning. This way you tie the two together. There used to be, of course, I remember I'd hear it advertised on the radio for these techniques. And an example they gave was for a Spanish word, the Spanish word for duck being pato. And they said, imagine a duck with a pot over its head. You know, so, so pot reminds you of pato. And then it's associated with the duck reminds you what it means. So this keyword method can, can also be used to help us learn foreign language vocabulary. And I bring that up because of some people who have told me how they're applying these techniques, foreign language learning has been a big one. For a time, I had correspondence with a man who was teaching high school Spanish in Florida, and he was adapting these methods. I know a few folks who told me they're using it to master uh, Latin. I had a man who contacted me who was a seminarian who was uh, studying Chinese, and he actually built his own memory palace 50 rooms with 10 locations, so it would hold 500 articles of information. And he said they helped him master the Chinese language. This is all kind of applications there. Uh, in terms of lists, there was a 10-year-old boy I work with who, who used this to memorize the names of all of our popes. There were 265 at the time. He memorized them all in order over a few months' uh, work. I discovered later that this parish priest had once offered his high school students a $100 reward if anyone could remember the names of all the popes and no one ever cashed in until 10-year-old John Paul took up the challenge and did it and, and cashed in. So there's all kinds of applications. Um, also, you know, so anything that you want to remember in exact order. Now, I use it most myself now when I do public speaking. If I'm giving a talk, even a, a brand new talk or back-to-back -back talks, I might have 30 or 40 key points I want to make sure I give. So I'll put these ideas in these locations. When I have them locked in those locations, I could give that talk backwards if I had to, from the last point to the first, because they're just locked in in exact order. You, you can also drill down. I gave a talk a couple years ago on the Feast of St. Martin de Porus to a Dominican group on St. Martin de Porus, and I had maybe 35 or 40 points I wanted to make, and I wanted to give some background. But I thought at about my sixth point, I wanted to give a mini biography of the key events of his life, seven or eight key things. So at that point, in the center of the foyer, the sixth point, I pull in this memory car, which was the first method I ever learned from that book, you know, your memory, speedway to success and all, it used 20 parts of a car. So at that point, I pulled in that car, I put those seven or eight key points from his life on the parts of that car, and then I moved along through the foyer, went back, went through to eight and moved on. So there's all kinds of ways you can mentally manipulate and combine these methods if you have a use for them. Also, lists could be things like the steps of a process in biology or something, or if you're working certain policies or procedures, things you're supposed to do in a certain order, it works for those. So, so all kinds of applications. Now, I will say too, if anyone has any questions about particular things you would like to know how to adapt this method for, feel free to ask and I'll see, you know, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. But at this point, if there aren't any, I will uh, move along and uh, 
talk about using this method to memorize uh, things like dates. All right, one very simple use of this method is to set up a historical timeline, especially if you're trying to remember key figures and events in the history of the church, because we're in the 21st century, right? And it would take a mere 21 locations to, to, to represent each one of those centuries. So if you go through our memory house, you go through that foyer, for example, that number one, the front door could help us memorize something that happened in the first century. Number two, the second century. And you would just have to work your way through the memory house up to a wall therm thermometer in the dining room, which is the 21st location, to lay down something that's going to remind you of events in the 21st uh, century. So once you had memorized like a key figure or event, you know, for each one of those uh, centuries, like for example, the 13th century, the 13th location happens to be a, a couch in my living room. And I would picture myself, I'd picture St. Thomas sitting there having a conversation with St. Albert the Great, because those are two key figures from the 13th century. Maybe I'd have King St. Louis of France sitting there talking with him because he knew them well too. But anyway, it'd be very easy to set up a historical Timeline. And I'll tell you, if I was a, a history teacher uh, of Catholic history or secular history, I would certainly do this myself and try to keep enriching and building this up so I have this, this richness to, to, to pull from, you know, that would build over time. I think I was asked to, to give a guide, too, for memorizing dates. We can certainly do that, uh, too. To memorize dates, I want to flesh out a technique I mentioned before. When I said I memorized those uh, 50 digits using this, uh, this digit technique, this is the method I employed that we can also apply to dates. And I'm going to give you one anecdote, too, about the power sometimes of artificial or man-made memory versus natural memory. Well, I'm going to make two points. You've probably heard of people with so-called, you know, um, uh, photographic memories, very, very powerful natural memories. Some people do have very powerful inborn capacities to remember things. Now, there are also people who become experts in memory through memory training. They've trained these memory strategies, the kind of things I'm talking about now. Of course, they've most of them been around for 2,500 years. You know, So a lot of people have practiced them over years. Now, when modern psychologists have done experiments, pitting people with naturally powerful memories ver versus people with strategic memory, people who have practiced these techniques. And the people who practice techniques typically perform better than the people with nat powerful natural memory. So these things are unusually powerful. Of course, if you took a person who already had a powerful natural memory and they became a master of the strategies, then, then watch out. You know, they're really, they're really going to be something. And in fact, there was a Russian neuropsychologist, Alexander Luryev, who wrote about a man who had that capacity. He had an almost photographic memory, but he also on his own developed similar visual imagery techniques and had just astounding... Uh, memory capacity. So, but in my own case, even a simple example, I remember one time years ago, I was going to give a talk for a homeschooling conference somewhere out east, and I knew the arrangement was. Once I landed at the airport, I called the hotel, and they're going to send out a shuttle to pick me up. So, when I saw what hotel it was a month or two before the talk, I thought, well, I'm going to practice my, I think I was talking about memory, so I'm going to practice my number technique. So, I memorized the hotel's phone number, area code, and the whole number using this technique, using artificial memory. Once I landed at the airport, I realized that with my natural memory, I didn't really pay too close attention to which hotel that was. 
So I realized I didn't remember. I didn't know my hotel's name. Here I am in this strange city, you know. I didn't remember where I was supposed to be going to, to talk to people about memory, right? Well, fortunately, since I did use the art of memory to recall the phone number, I could I had that. So I was able to call them. And of course, as soon as they answered, I knew which hotel I was going to. But just to give an idea of the power there, that that two-word hotel name, I forgot because I didn't pay adequate attention. But that 10-digit number, I easily remembered because I applied this, this method to. So there's a lot of power there. But now, let's do, let me show you how to use this number method. All right. Now, I didn't give this in the handout. The technique itself has been around for hundreds of years, and there's a few different versions of it, but I like this version I'm going to give you. In my book, Memorize the Faith, I, I do give you the, the full code. It's also in my book, Memorize the Reasons, but I'll give you the gist of it here orally right now. All right. Number one, we will, uh, the code for number one, it becomes a T or a D sound. T or D. The simple reminder, when you write the number one, there's just one downstroke, like when you start writing a T or a D. Number two becomes an N, an N like Nancy. And you might want to think that when you, when you write an N, there's kind of two strokes, that downstroke, and then you're making the curve. One, two. Two is N. Three is M. I think we're going to add another motion. This downstroke, let that, and it's M. So three will always translate to M. Four becomes R. One way to think of it, what's the last letter of the word for? An R. Five will also be, always be an L. One reminder, the Roman numeral for 50 uh, uses an L. It might be a reminder. Number six will be a J or, or a, a soft sound like J or CH. And you might think, uh, yeah, so six is for the uh, J sound. So you might think if you flipped around a six, it sort of looks like a J. Seven is going to be for the K sound, or also for a hard G, K or G, similar, similar consonant sounds. And you might think that if you uh, flipped a seven around and added a diagonal, it looks sort of like a K. You know, once you use this, you don't need these little reminders. It becomes automatic. Oh, yeah, which is another component to all these systems. They take a lot of work at first, then they become a piece of cake once you've mastered them. Eight is the F or V sound. And one way I saw to remember that is think of a figure skater doing a figure eight. Figure starts with F and it's for eight. Nine is the P or B. Again, you can think if you flip the nine around, it kind of looks like a P, right? So nine for P or B. And then finally, the O, the zero, gives us S or Z. And one reminder is the word zero starts with the Z. All right. Once you have that code, and once you've practiced it, you can turn you know, any kind of verbal, I mean, I'm sorry, any kind of numerical information into words which are easy to memorize. So for example, when I was doing that 50 digit number, you know, let's say uh, the numbers came out three, four, we're ended up back to back. I'm not memorizing three, four, I'm memorizing M, R, a mare. I'll picture maybe a mare there. Or if it came out 4-3, I'm not going 4-3, I'm going R-M. Oh, I'm going to picture a ram. If 2 and 2 came out, it would be N-N. None. I'll picture a none there, you know. So no matter what those digits come out, I can easily form 
a simple little word that's easy to remember. And when I look at that image, I read it back and translate it back into those numbers. You know, you have, you have some uh, options here, the way I gave you. For example, nine, if it was nine, seven, for example, we could use things like a puck or a peck or a bug or a buck. We have a whole lot of things we can choose from. But once you choose the right one, they would all translate only back to nine, seven in that exact order. So this can be very, very flexible system. I will say too, with all these memory systems, you know, like when we go through these demos, I'm, I'm suggesting images for you, but their most powerful images are the ones that you come up with yourself. Because I'm using things that kind of work as reminders for me. You might have more powerful images that work as reminders for you. But anyway, so once you have this numerical code down, let's say we wanted to uh, memorize some particular dates. And, and dates was mentioned to me as something that you folks might find of use. I normally don't do too much of that. Again, believe me, if I was a history teacher, I sure would. <laughs> but I got thinking just, just yesterday, well, what's a very simple, simple way to lock in dates? Well, one easy step, there's only 12 months. We could easily come up with a memory image for every one of the months. For example, for the month of August, I'm not going to reach over, but I actually have a statue, an old statue of Augustus Caesar in my room. And I would use Augustus Caesar to represent the month of August for me. It happens to be named after him too. But okay, but let me give you an example. First, I want us to picture the image of an octopus. Any guesses what month we're trying to remember here? Well, I see people, some people mouthing October. Yeah, because it just sounds like it. Okay, so I'm going to imagine that we see this great octopus. He's rising out of the sea. He's surrounded by these boats. He happens to be in the middle of this great momentous naval battle. All right, we see on this octopus, he happens to be wearing this very nice embroidered sweater. And it has a large K on it. Maybe it's named like mine, Kevin, maybe it starts with a K. But that K we're using to, to memorize a number. And what is that number we're trying to memorize? A seven from our code, right? Because K always translates back to seven. So from that octopus with the K, we know it's something that happened on October 7th. Now, we have one more image here. Where this octopus is holding up a kite. And you notice it's a beautiful teal color. It's a teal kite. Now, if we go through our numerical code, teal has translates to two of those digits, right? T is always a one, L is always a five. So that's telling us one five. Kite would be a seven and another one, right? So what we've memorized here is something that happened on October 7th, 1571. If I, if I look things up right, uh, that's the date of the great historical battle of Lepanto. And that's why our image included the, the naval ships, you know, having a battle there. So if we memorize that, that octopus there, it locks in the month, the K in her shirt is the date, and that little extra image gives us the exact year. Once we translate these images and words back to numbers. Now, sometimes when I talk about these techniques, it's not uncommon for people to say, that's kind of a, really more information that's there in just the date itself. Or going through the Ten Commandments, you know, 
You can memorize the Ten Commandments, or I can have you memorize ten locations and ten silly images and ten commandments. There's more information there. That 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 is certainly true. Uh, but part, and it takes more effort. But part of the reason these techniques are so successful is that effort requires concentration, one of our steps towards memorizing. And also it transforms that book learning into an experience. So once you practice enough with these techniques, once you know the location system, once you know that number system, if you think that would be helpful to you, then they become very, very easy to use once you've laid the groundwork and out the practice. So they can be very, very practical. I remember this location system. I, I, when I used to run, I ran through the park with a friend. We ran for about three miles, which would have taken you know, 25 minutes, 30 minutes or so. I remember he, he memorized this digit code and could use it masterfully just during our one run. So it, but for all these methods to, to grow in them, to keep them, to be able to effectively use them, you have, to, you have to practice them until they become second nature. So sometimes I would do it early on with a numerical code by like phone numbers. I would try to translate them you know, into these mnemonic codes or license plates uh, or whatever. But another use, though, if people do want to actually try to memorize uh, scriptural passages, would be to, to start with the location system for the books of the Bible. So anything you're trying to, rem- to remember, if it comes from a particular book, you already have your, your image there. If it came from Leviticus, you're going to place this with those uh, Levi jeans out in the front yard, make some kind of association there, you know. Always know that always stands for uh, Leviticus, for for example. Uh, then, to memorize chapter and verse, we can call in this uh, number system. So let me give you uh, one example there. In the book Memorize the Faith, I gave a few examples of some of my favorite scriptural passages, and one that I you know always paid a lot of heed to was you know. We're told, uh, you know, Christ told us to render unto Caesar what is Caesar and render to God, unto God what is God. Well, what's one way we could remember where exactly that is in the Bible? And I'd say, okay, we're going to need an image for Mark because it does appear in the gospel of Mark. And if you happen to know a person named Mark, use him, tie him into this image. If you happen to know the classical image for the evangelist Mark being a lion, a winged lion, you could put the lion into this image. But I say, imagine that he's, you have Mark or you have this lion, the evangelist, speaking to Caesar, Augustus Caesar or Julius Caesar, form that kind of image. Because this will lock in. We're talking about a verse from Mark that deals with Caesar, that famous verse about rendering unto Caesar. Now, we're going to imagine that Caesar says something. We're going to imagine he has, his royal dogs are with him and they come up to Mark, either as a man or a lion, and Caesar says to those dogs, he says, or to his dog, he says, down, dog, down, dog. Now, that phrase tells us the chapter and the verse, according to our code. Down, D, is a one, N is a two. So it's the 12th chapter. Dog, one is a D, seven is a K, or a G. So it has to be the 17th verse. So if you remember that little image, you will know that the verse about rendering unto Caesar is in the, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verse 17. And now, you know, of course, this could be tedious doing verse after verse after verse. But if you have some 
some favorite verses, it can be a fun way to lock them in. Let me give you one more example of one of my absolute favorite verses. I love uh, the virtues and the way St. Thomas and St. Paul write about them. Imagine you see these three beautiful sisters, each one more beautiful than the last. They're standing by a a single Corinthian column, and they're all beating on a tom-tom. Okay, now what does this represent? These three sisters, we're going to say, are the, the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity, right? And we know that um, St. Paul told us that, that charity is the greatest of them all. That's the most beautiful sister there. What's that one uh, Corinthian column have to do with anything? Well, this verse is in the first, first Corinthians. <clears throat> and that's a reminder for Corinthians, just a Corinthian column, a Greek column. And what's this tom-tom business? Well, it's a chapter and verse. Use our code again. T is one, three is M, tom-tom. It's chapter 13, verse 13. So see how a silly little image like that can give us the theme, the chapter, and the verse. But what if you want to go full bore here and actually memorize uh, scriptural passages, the the word-for-word verbatim? How do these techniques fit in there? Again, remember, this is in the realm now of uh, memoria verborum, memory for words, exact words as opposed to images. And I would always say, you know, maybe you've used these methods, you've locked down the theme, where it is in the Bible, which chapter and verse, but now you want the uh, exact words, I suggest you do use your traditional memory technique of reading it out loud. These memory methods, you know, aren't to totally replace other memory methods. They're special aids that you need to determine when and when when they're not appropriate to use. Now, myself, to, to master a verse, I will read it aloud a few times because it's not just a matter of images. We want to get the, the, the rhythm, how the, the verse flows, to, to hear it in our own head so we can, can uh, pronounce it the right way when we're trying to give word-for-word word verbatim recall. But I will then often, depending on the length of the verse, call in some of these memory aids to help lock in keywords or phrases. Sometimes, if it's a long passage, I'll use an image to lock in the first word of each phrase to kind of then will draw me along. I know I'm never going to lose track of the next thought there. Sometimes for a shorter passage, is it in a more direct way? I'll give you one example. All right. I won't go through the whole, the whole thing, but just here's how we could do it. We could go to the, we could use our memory foyer again. And uh, for the first word, I want you to recall the word true. So we'll imagine on the front door, there's a big item from a true and false exam and the true is checked, okay? So true, the big check, the, the, the T for true at the front door. Number two, at the doormat, you picture there's a judge there and someone's calling him your honor. Uh, and actually his, his name, you find out, is, is uh, Abel. So they call him your honor, Abel, like, you know, like uh, Cain's brother, Abel. Number three, we look through the glass panel, and here's another judge, but this is a Supreme Court justice. So there's the justice there, number three. Um, number four, you see a blender that's set on puree, okay? And I'm going to do this quickly. Number five, you imagine at the, at the uh, gun rack that there's this, this uh, very lovely person there. In fact, her name is lovely. Or imagine that you see a heart there, something that will remind you 
of love. Uh, number six, let's say you see the three graces standing in the center of the foyer. Number seven, up in the chandelier, we see, we see a large number of ants. And they all are wearing extra large t-shirts because they say XL on them. These are big ants. Okay, so XL ants are up there in the chandelier. Just one more, uh, or no, two more. And the, the, the mirror, I'm going to imagine that we uh, see uh, people at, a, 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 we could say uh, non-Catholics is some kind of a praise worship session. And they're, they're praising the Lord with their hands lifted and they're shaking their hands, praising. Okay, and then... Uh, the last thing, sitting on the cushion bench, you just see a bunch of things. All right. So here we go, just real briefly. You know, the words, you know, as we went through, we saw true, we saw an honor named Abel, we saw a justice, we saw puree, we saw lovely, something gracious, we saw these ants with the XL shirts, we saw the praise, and we saw these things. Okay, so what was this all about? This is an example of a verse I memorized a few years ago, because I was asked to talk on the virtues down at Aquinas College in Nashville, and their theme, you know, was St. Thomas Aquinas on the virtues. They had a verse that was their motto that I wanted to repeat during my talk. Now, to remember where this verse come from, came from, sorry, let's imagine you have a, name, a friend named Phil. Do you have a friend named Phil, or can you picture, picture some person that you know named Phil? Uh, if you have to go to a celebrity, I always think of Phil Donahue from some years back. Phil Silver is a comedian from, from back before that. Uh, but just have some kind of Phil there. And picture him up on your roof. He's up on your roof, and he's reciting this verse. Now, we're using Phil because it's terminus of Philippians. And he's on your roof. That roof captures the chapter and verse because it's R4 or for four and F for eight. So we know this verse is Philippians 4.8, but what is the verse? All right, now again, if we're really going to memorize this, I would read the whole verse, you know, a few times through to get the feel, but I'm just doing this to, to give us a little bit of suspense, right, you know, for our demonstration. But here's the verse that goes, um, St. Paul says in Philippians 4.8, finally, brethren, he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there is any excellence, excel ants, excellence, right? If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, okay? So there's Philippians 4.8. Just giving you an example how in this particular verse, it's, it's a list of things we want to remember. And for me, it's something worth remembering. Actually, when I sign books, I often put down there, Phil 4.8, you know, hoping people will, will look that up. because It's one of my favorite Versus on keeping our minds in the right order by thinking of these beautiful, true, just, you know, things that God has given us. So that's one example there. Um, you know, in your own case, verses of particular interest to you that you find uh, beautiful or useful in your own life. If you were going to do apologetics, if you knew you were going to have a discussion with someone or evangelization, and you wanted to remember a few key verses like explaining why we believe what we do as Catholics, why we believe what we do about some of the dogmas about Mary or about the primacy of Peter in the papacy or about the, the Catholic view of the role of the Bible versus tradition. We can use methods like this to lock in the reasons we believe what we do 
and trace them to their biblical origins or their origins in the writings of a church father or a, or a council or something with the same kind of imagery technique. And we can lock in the chapter and verse with these numbers. And if we like and put forth the effort, we can even lock in a few key verses this way, uh, word for word. So at this point, you'll have a formal Q&A. I have a little bit more to say, but I'll see too at this point if there are any questions, if anything is left uh, unclear what I've done so far. Excellent. Yes, there's um, good questions coming in here and I'm kind of categorizing them real quick. So let me go ahead and let's start with this one. This question is being written and says the following, how do you use the method of loci to remember a certain um, items numerative place in a list? Like if someone says, what is the 17th book of the Bible? Do you have to start from the beginning and work your way through until you get to 17? Or can you go directly to 17? Well, it depends on how uh, well you've uh, mastered it. Once you had learned the list and really had, had mastered in order, they, they hang in a sequence. They hang in a sequence there. So now there, there's the possibility to get what they call proactive or retroactive interference. Like I just used the same foyer for several things in a row. And, and once you learn something, you learn something new right away, they can start to, to mesh, right? They can kind of uh, get in the way there. Uh, but if you separate them with time, once you learn the, the ordering system in great detail, and if you've practiced and refreshed, you know, then you can give those books, uh, you know, in their exact order. You should be able to just, you know, randomly, I, I messed up myself tonight, I'm getting tired, but you should for any of those lists be able to go through and know them by their numerical order, you know, just, just jumping in uh, where it is that you, that you uh, jump in. To get, give you an example now, going back like to that uh, Old Testament, if we jumped in at the, the 28th book, there's, there's a television set there in the mnemonic, and there's a big wisdom tooth, remind us of the book of wisdom. You go to a closet, the 29th location. Somebody in the closet said, oh, Zirak of clothes is here. Sirak. You go to the 29th location. It's, it's a, a weightlifting bench. And a man is there, and he's stuck, and he says, I say, old man, can you help me get unstuck? That I say is for Isaiah. We already saw the 30th book of the Old Testament is, is Jeremiah, because Jeremiah, the bullfrog, is sitting on our pool table. So if you're fresh, if, you've, if you really practice these and know the drill, for any particular information you want to present to another person, have fresh in your mind at that time, you'll, you'll have them in their uh, exact order. In fact, when I'm getting ready to talk about a particular topic, I will often drill myself doing just that. Pull the 13th or the 14th or the 19th and see if I can rattle that off. I do when I give talks. I will drill that to make sure I do actually have them locked in in their exact order. Because, you know, if you have a vast amount of memory, it's easy for things to get jumbled over time. But anytime you, you know you're going to need to call that forth, you should rehearse and make sure it's you know, precise. Steve Cherry's asking a question. I wonder if it relates. Steve's wondering if there is a limit to the number of locations that should be used for a room. In other words, should the number of places in a room be limited in order to reduce the complexity? And I, I've also heard, maybe you can affirm this, that the number also can serve as a way to sort of you place markers in between. So if all your rooms are the same number of things, and you've got like five rooms are all 10, when you go to item number 30, you could just start at the first of the third room. And yes. maybe the arranging oh, yeah. of that helps. Oh, yes, 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 that's right. Uh, the rooms that I set up in Memorize of Faith, the first one has 10 locations, the second seven, then seven, then I do a nine, then I do a 
a seven and I do a 20. I, I tailored that just to fit the particular subject matter I was using when I first went through it. The rooms can be of varied numbers. The most complex room I have has 20 locations because that was first used for the 20 mysteries of the rosary, including, you know, the, the, the luminous ones that, that St. John Paul added. But even in a room like that where I had 20 locations, I basically broke it down into five quadrants. Uh, so, so no matter how many locations are in your room, you can break this down and just focus on certain sections at a time because that is a key element. The ancients knew this too. Those limitations, like at seven plus or minus two, uh, we, we remember things better when we break it down into small digestible chunks. So for example, in the book, when I go through things like the books of the Bible, we just do one room or even a part of a room at a time. So that's very important. You do want to make these manageable chunks. And as far as the number of rooms you need, it, it would vary. For myself, when I give talks, I usually find that 40 locations is plenty to give a very uh, detailed talk. That first memory system I learned based on parts of a car had only 20 locations total. But I found that in itself very, very useful. And to this day, I still sometimes use that one. Uh, how, how do you prevent, another question that's coming in, is how do you prevent the creation of these rooms from being overwhelming? I mean, like you were saying, uh, yes, it requires a concentration, so that's helpful in remembering, but there's always this temptation, and especially since our access to ways of externalizing information are becoming quicker and quicker and quicker. Mm -hmm. um, can you give maybe some words of hope or encouragement or something? For someone who's hearing this for the first time, it seems like so much. You got to create this whole um, house of images. Does that cease to become overwhelming over time? And to what extent can you mm -hmm. reuse that same thing that you created? I know you mentioned there's this problem of different lists interfering with each other. How do you avoid that problem from creeping up as well? Yeah, great question. Well, one thing too, these, these techniques are designed to make difficult material easier because you're going to base it on something you're already familiar with. Now, when I use this room technique in my books, you know, since it's a book, we have illustrations. We, we show the room. We show some of these images. So you can actually look at it and get familiar. I usually recommend to people, though, who want to study further in this technique Make them, base them on something most familiar to you. Build your own memory house. Mm -hmm. Start with a certain room in your own house, which you know better than the back of your own hand, you know? So, so you're going to personalize this. To give one example, there was a, a gal I worked with her. One of her kids was, I believe, second grade and had a vocabulary test coming up. And they had a poor record of memorizing and learning these vocabulary words. So she asked me, she knew I did this memory stuff. She asked me for some tips on how to do that. And she sat down with them within their own house. And they did this. They took these words, they made the images, they put them on the parts of their house that this child knew so well. He'd lived there all his life. She told me a few days later, he was the first kid ever to be able to recall all 40 vocabulary words for, for that teacher. They worked for a second grader. Um, so, so, you know, with effort, most people can master this. But I would say, yes, start small. Start with like an illustrated image I got in my book or use your own house. You know, just do a few things at a time. And if you find that works, then, then work your way up. Because, yes, it, it does get much easier with time the more you practice and master. And it might surprise you. When, the, when Memories of Faith first came out, I had an 80-some-year-old neighbor who, who was excited. She got a copy and read it. She told me afterwards, she said, Kevin, she goes, I want to tell you, I thought after I first read your first couple of chapters, I thought this book was a little too hard for me. She said, but I woke up in the middle of the night. She said, and I realized 
I could name all the Ten Commandments in order, and I knew the seven uh, deadly sins. So she had surprised herself. You know, that capacity is there in most of us if we're willing to take the practice. And again, you know, also, again, with, with the different lists, once you learn this method, we're doing a lot of lists so you can master the method. Mm-hmm. But then you'll find where is this useful in your real life, you know? As a student, if you do any speaking or teaching, there may be certain cases where that is useful to you. Then if you're going to present certain material, again, you're going to brush up on that material. You're going to know that particular run through the house and know it left and right. Like myself, like these memory rooms now, I've been using them since 2004. Every talk I've done really has been based on this room. So all kinds of different subject matter have run through these different locations. But they hang together based on the particular talk I'm giving. Now, now, could I go today and go back to a talk I did in 2011 on a different subject and go through that room and give it all to you right now? Well, actually, no, I couldn't. But if I went back and refreshed, I looked at my notes, then in a matter of maybe three or four or five minutes, yes, I could. I could go through, recall that after it's been refreshed, and give that information. So that kind of capacity can develop over time. But again, yeah, I don't want to overwhelm. I want people to know If you start small, you might be surprised how easily you can master simple things. And if you find it fun, if you find it helpful, over time, they will become very easy to use. So that's a question coming in uh, regarding the octopus example you gave for memorizing the dates. Is there a particular way that we should be forming these images? How do you know the order in which to go through them? Like what if you see the... um, ship or something first, you don't see the octopus first. How do you guarantee the order? Right, right. Well, for the order, you know, for date, the exact date is something new to myself. You need to just establish a particular pattern you're going to use. Like you could possibly imagine that the, the um, well, since we're doing dates, you might want to, it could go either way, but I'd say, let's say we're going to imagine the month first. So there's our octopus that says, I'm remembering something that's definitely in October. Okay. And then I might want to say, well, or we could do, you could do it either way. But once you set the pattern, you'd probably want to stick with it. You say, I want to know a certain date. So I'm going to tie something first with that octopus. My example, well, there's a K on his sweater to remind us of seven, right? What if we're trying to remember St. Francis of Assisi's feast day? Well, and it's a four. So instead of that, maybe we're going to picture that octopus with one of his arms holding on to an oar, like an oar of a boat, because oar, R is a four, you know, something like that. So we, we could set up a practice. The first thing we remember shows us the month, and then the day. Then, then we could say we're going to tie the next image to what it is we're actually trying to remember. That would be our naval battle if we're using the seventh. Or it could be an image of St. Francis of Assisi if we're trying to remember his feast day. Uh, and then the last thing we would do, the last image would give us the year, which I think we use the teal kite for 1571. If we wanted to remember when St. Francis of Assisi died, that he died in 1226, personally, I would go one, two, tan, T-N. Uh, two, six, for some reason, reminds me of the philosophy Friedrich Nietzsche. Okay, we got the, the N. and So I would picture St. Francis of uh, Assisi talking to a very tan Friedrich Nietzsche. Okay, so there we have it all, the octopus with the oar, October 4th. The Francis image for St. Francis's feast day, and then he's talking to Tan Nietzsche for 1226. Uh, well, actually, I'm sorry. The, the fourth is a feast day. He actually died on the third. We could, we could tie in another mnemonic for that if we wanted to, uh, to represent three. 
But but in general, for the questions, if you're going to use this for dates, just set up your own particular order, but then just stick to it. Yes. Okay. That's very helpful. There's another question coming in uh, from Reverend Father Michael DeBlanc, who uh, thanks you for the talk tonight um, and is noticing that the techniques you mentioned are mainly visual in nature. He's wondering if there's a way that sound and audio can play a role in memorization. He knows uh, some people learn best through sound, so he's wondering how that can be incorporated. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's absolutely, you know, th this is this traditional technique that is this visual memory uh, heavy, but there are there's certainly other techniques. One thing we, we've heard that there is a verbal, there's an oral component to some of these techniques, because sometimes they play on puns or words that just uh, uh, sound alike when we use steel for a steel chandelier. Also, you know, there are classic memory methods that involve uh, songs. We can certainly employ that. Some people, too, the, the differences in memory powers. Some people have unusually powerful visual memories. Some people do have unusually powerful uh, auditory memories. So, but, so those can be trained, too. As I mentioned, too, like when we're memorizing verses, we want to hear that rhythm, hear the flow. And again, a, a classic is, is the use of, of sounds of songs. There's even an ancient memory method that combines both. It's called, I think, like the Guidian hand, where you memorize the notes of a musical scale by memorizing certain digits of each finger, which holds a particular note. I don't know the, the full dynamics there, but there's a broad history there. Uh, so yeah, developed memory methods can be developed that will also tie in other senses. Sometimes even in these visual mics, I try to bring them in. You know, you might imagine like, that you heard the crash of those idols. So if you happen to have a particularly strong memory, you can try to use your own strength to tie in the other senses. You can even imagine you smell something or you taste something. There are ways that you could try to incorporate other senses even into this uh, visual uh, heavy system. Yeah, that's a great point of when we're visualizing these things, we should incorporate the senses into that visual imagery too. So you hear the thing that you just imagined and you, you can pretend to smell it or something like that. And that helps that image stick. This, that, that makes a lot of sense. Gina is writing in and is asking, is there a particular method that we can use to help remember people's names that we've just met? I love that one. <laughs> That's what I hear all the time. And it, it's a very, very good one. Um, yes. In fact, that first memory book I had had, had uh, a, a variety of ways that you can do that. And some can get pretty uh, uh, detailed and yet they're memorable. Because one I remember from this book I read in the 1970s, you're, you're trying to uh, remember the name of Mr. Hightower. You notice he has a tall forehead. So you imagine that there's a tall tower sticking out of his, or high tower sticking out of his forehead. So things like that. You can form these little things that remind you something about that, the sound of that person's name. But here's the one that I find easiest and most helpful for myself. Now, one thing, this is a really question, really is good. It does come up all the time and it's important. I told you, I can memorize, you know, 40 students, you know, in my class. I could also meet one person for the first time, walk away and say, now, who the heck was that? Myself, right? <laughs> because remember that attention that focus, any kind of memory method, if you're not paying attention, it can fly in one ear, out the other, and then it's gone for good. So if you're going to meet a new person, pay attention, you know, say their name yourself, repeat it, you know, try 
to lock that in. As far as these uh, special techniques, here's the one I find easiest, especially because I'm 58 years old. I've been alive a long time. You know, I've met a lot of people, read a lot about a lot of people, and heard about them, and so on. So when I meet a new person, I typically try to associate them in an image interacting with a person I already know by that name. This summer, I uh, met a couple at a homeschooling conference. They were selling some religious uh, art, or actually teaching a course, I believe, on, on doing religious art. And the, the nice lady's name was Ginger, and her husband was Duke. So uh, I told her, I said, I'm going to remember you. I'm going to remember Ginger Grant from Gilligan's Island, because I grew up with that, talking with the Duke, John Wayne. You know, so I'm going to form this strong image. And she liked that when she liked being compared to Ginger Grant. When I told her that, and her husband didn't mind being compared to the Duke, John Wayne, you know. But I'm going to do that. Uh, I meet a new person, you know, and his name's Joe. I'm going to picture the Joe I know best having a talk with this guy, try to lock in their, their, their features. So that's, that's one technique I use. The easiest, quickest way just to tie in their name, because usually the first name is definitely better than nothing. You can greet that person and call them by that name. You know, you can also use additional methods for the last name. But again, number one, pay attention, focus, try to repeat their name so it's not gone forever, and lock them in immediately to somebody you already know. So, so I'd have uh, Andy sitting there with uh, Sheriff Andy Taylor, maybe, you know, so I'm going to associate you with them some, that, some way, Andy, so I'm hopefully will never forget when I see your face, uh, maybe I'm going to picture you in his uh, Mayberry outfit. One um, other question, but I, I, I'll, I'll just sort of toss the answer out here and then I, I want to wrap up with a, a comment here. It's two questions coming in about the best way to teach children this method. Yes, uh, would you affirm Dr. Vos is just simply letting them have a taste for it, right? Or is there something else that you would have? Well, yeah, there is, and there's a general principle. This thing I looked at my, my master's thesis research for one thing. The younger the child is, you need to remember, uh, the less developed is their natural memory ability. Mm. Like that seven capacity builds up over time. And they used to say a rough rule of thumb is like, you know, don't give a three-year-old more than three items, a four-year-old more than four items, you know, something along those lines. So keep that in mind. So keep it simple with the younger children. Also, remember I called my, my master's thesis talked about the internalization of higher psychological processes. This reflects the idea that things we learn often start on the outside, in the externals. So the younger the child is, the more the concrete help you want to give them, actually showing them uh, pictures. There was a time when I was going to talk to children about the seven deadly sins, and I had this bag of things, like I had a sloth, to show them what a sloth looked like, you know. So things like that. So for young children, you know, limit the number of items, make it very simple, make it very concrete, give them external aids, and try to make it as familiar as possible. Like with a young child, don't start with a picture from my book. Sit them in your lap and start with their own house that they know so well. Makes perfect sense. Dr. Vos, thank you so much. I know I'm not just speaking on my behalf, but everyone who's attending here, that this is, um, you know, it's so exciting to have these tangible skills and tools that we can then apply and really a call to arms to reimagine memory as a part of uh, prudence, right? And, and part of moral formation that we should be fostering and strengthening in ourselves and think of it as something that's directly related to our call uh, to sharing God's life and to share that life 
uh, with others, something that we can practice on our own. So thank you so much for taking the time with us. We really do appreciate it. You're all most welcome. Absolutely my pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.